Good morning. As Lois mentioned at the very start, for the month of January, plus one bonus month in, or week in February, we're going to be walking through and looking together at what we believe through the Belgic Confession. And my guess is you would, most of us here, measure the time since we've last read the Belgic Confession, not in days, not in weeks, not in months, but probably in years since you've read the Belgic Confession. Probably going back, if you grew up in the, in the church like I did, probably going back to your high school days when you were forced to read the Belgic Confession in catechism class, and, and then you set it aside and you forget about it, right? Well, we are going to pull it back out and look at it again because these doctrinal teachings that we often don't like to deal with, that we don't like to think about, they are so key and so important for us to know. Sadly, many of us here don't really know exactly what it is that we profess to believe. And even if we do know what it is that we profess to believe, we don't really know why. We couldn't explain it and defend it. And that's a dangerous place to be. You know, the, these words of the Belgic Confession and the other catechisms that we, that we ascribe to, they, they shape they're the foundational truths about life and eternity that shape who we are, that shape how we view this world. They shape how we live our lives and how we understand God and guilt and grace and, and how, even how we relate to people all around us. Right? These are truths that are worth living for. Because for many people throughout history, they've been truths that have been worth dying for. Let me introduce you for a moment to Guido Debray. Guido Debray died for these truths that you find in the Belgic Confession. You see, he's the one who wrote the Belgic Confession way back in the year 1561. Uh, let me put that year in context a little bit for you because numbers don't mean much without context. 1561, Martin Luther, the one who started the Reformation, really, he had just passed away a few years earlier. John Calvin is still teaching his doctrine. In fact, Guido Debray is one of... John Calvin's students. Since the height of the Reformation in Europe, remember this Reformation had a strange mix of politics and religion all coming together. And so this Roman Catholic government headed by, by King Philip II unleashed a horrific persecution against all these reformers, accusing them not only of, of sabotaging the church, but being rebels against the government as well. So Guido de Bray, this, this preacher from the Netherlands, decided to put down on paper the core of what it is that, that he and other reformers believed to tell King Philip and to show him clearly, look, we are not political rebels here. We are people who are willing, willing to follow the government. But we also hold to the true Christian teachings, and here's what they are. And so he wrote down what we come to know as the Belgic Confession. And he took this, this confession that he wrote and he sent it off to King Philip II. Again, telling him, we're going to obey you. That's fine. We're not rebelling against the government. But when it comes to these theological truths, this is what they said. They said, we will offer, they will offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire to defend these truths and the in their confession. That's passion. That's commitment. And Guido de Bray did just that. 
Because he sent this confession out to the king, he was arrested, he was tried, he was found guilty, and he was hung. He died for these truths that we roll our eyes at too often and dismiss and pay little attention to. And as he was standing with the hangman behind him, ready to die, right before the hangman pushed him, he was still talking to the people there to watch him die, talking to them about these truths, about these spiritual truths that he held to so foundationally. For Guido de Bray, these were truths worth dying for. Now my guess is you and I are not going to be asked to die for these truths. We're going to be asked to do something even harder. To live for them. To live them out. To let them shape not just your mind with some intellectual knowledge, but to shape your life of how you live these things out. These are truths worth living for. So before we dive into our first one this, this Sunday, would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for the men and women that you have led throughout history to study you and study your word so well and so passionately and who had the courage to put down on paper what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, who are willing to die for these truths. Father, I ask that you would give us a desire to know you, to know your ways, to know your world better and better. So this morning as we begin this journey through the foundational, foundational doctrines of what we believe, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to be shaped by this faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a, a photo. A grainy photo that first came out back in 1934. It's a photo that was sent to the London Daily Mail. My guess is you recognize who that is. Who's that in that picture? Sir, the Loch Ness Monster. For those who are on a first name basis, it's Nessie, if you want to call her Nessie. Back in 1934, this photo was published, and it started, started a hoax that lasted for decades. People believed that in this lake up in the Scottish Highlands lived a prehistoric monster named Nessie. And they searched for her, and they looked for her, and they tried to find her, and nobody ever did. Nessie, over the decades, has been proven to be folklore and not fact, along with Bigfoot and along with the Chupacabra and whatever other, whatever mysterious beings you'd like to, to talk about, right? That doesn't stop, even still today, people from going to search for Nessie to look for her, see if they can find her. And it certainly doesn't stop people from making a good dollar off of Nessie. If you were to take a vacation up to the Scottish Highlands, you can go to Nessie land. You won't want to miss it. Put on your things to do list. Up in, in Nessie land, you can take a cruise out on Loch Ness and maybe they say you might just see Nessie. Or at Nessie land, you can also view the monster presentation at the big movie theater they have there. The kids can go out and play on, on the adventure playground while you parents sit in the cafe and drink coffee and eat scones or whatever they eat there in Scotland. And before you leave, they'll make sure that you have to walk to the gift shop so that they can get a little, a little more of your money before you go. 
I don't think this hoax will be getting any of my time and my money soon. Apologies to all of you who are, who are regular attenders at Nessie land and who enjoy it. Right? Much of the world around us today, people living in your neighborhood, people all around us, people you work with, people you go to college with, they believe that you and I are suckers who have bought into a hoax even bigger than the Loch Ness Monster. To them, by giving our time, by giving our attention, by giving especially our money to religious organizations, to churches like this one, what we've done is we've, we've propped up this myth, this hoax, that there's a higher power out there, somebody called God, right? And we've lined the pockets of people like me with our dollars. To them, Ivan Rest Church and Nessie Land are the same thing. They're parallel organizations. Opportunities to take advantage of people who want to believe in a fantasy. So what if you had to defend the existence of God to them? What if you had to sit down across a table? How would you show them that God isn't a myth? What's the evidence that you and I have that God is real? I mean, we don't even have a grainy photograph. Right? Many of us grew up believing that there was a God, right? It was a given. I grew up in a Christian home. It was a given from the day of my birth that I believed that there was a God. But what if I had to come to that notion, that truth, that discovery on my own? Where's the evidence that I would need to believe? Where would I turn? Where would you turn? That's where Guido Debray starts us at the Belgic Confession. He points us towards two places where God himself reveals himself to you and to me. So, if you want proof that God isn't a myth, that God is not a hoax, that God is not a lie, the first thing you need to do is you simply need to open your eyes and look around you. Look around at this creation which is announcing God's existence nonstop for everyone to see and to hear. Right? This, this glorious world around us, yes, it's broken, yes, there's, there's ugly parts of it too. But the glory of this creation around us is ours to savor, to enjoy, and to get our fill. And it's always pointing to God. And, you know, I may be a little bit biased. But I think Michigan, the state we live in, with our lakes and our rivers, with the sunsets over the water, with the thunderstorms that roll in, it's a wonderful place to taste the goodness of God's creation, right? Our ears get to hear the roaring of the waves and, and, and the rustling of the leaves and the singing of the birds. Our eyes get to see the expanse of the water in the summer and the brilliance of the colors in the fall and the detail of each snowflake in the winter. And we get to see the, the fresh shoot of green grass coming up out of the brown, dry ground every spring. And our noses get to smell the aroma of the flowers and, and that smell of the first rain that comes. And our mouths get to enjoy 
the refreshing flood of the watermelon in the summer and the sour sting of those little blueberries that are still a little bit more purple than blue and the, the popping of the corn coming off the cob. Right? And this list could, could go on and on of the glorious beauty of this world and this creation all around us. But so often we enjoy this creation, we admire the beauty, but we are oblivious to the fact that all of these glorious experiences around us are pointing us towards our Creator. Too often we are absolutely thrilled with this creation, but we ignore God who created it. Right, John Calvin points out how ridiculous that is. Hundreds of years ago, he wrote, nothing is more preposterous than to enjoy the very, very remarkable gifts that attest to the divine nature within us, yet to overlook the author who gives them to us at our asking. And yet that's exactly what you and I do. We ignore the message that God is giving us in his creation. Right, that message, you heard it. You heard it this morning. Lois read it to you as our call to worship. Let me read those verses to you again from Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. The words to the ends of the world. This creation all around us is shouting the existence of God if we will listen to it. You, you are shouting the existence of God. Any of you, of you who have even tried to study the human body that you have, know that, that it's a miracle that you're alive and as healthy as you are. You and I are walking miracles, pointing to God daily. In fact, I read, I read the other day a, a, a genetic scientist, a genetic engineer, just listing through some of the miracles of the human body that we so take for granted. Listen to some of these that he pointed out. He said, the average human heart pumps over 1,000 gallons every day. That's 55 million gallons in a lifetime your heart will pump. Enough to fill 13 super tankers. That's your little heart right inside of you. It never sleeps. It will beat 2.5 billion times in your lifetime. Amazing. And you never think about it. It just goes. Your lungs. Your lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries, little blood vessels. And those little blood, blood vessels are what, what help turn oxygen into carbon dioxide, right? You're doing it right now without even thinking about it. You know how hard that is to do, to turn oxygen into carbon dioxide, to do that exchange? He said it is more difficult to exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's prayer on the head of a pin before he falls. And you're doing it right now. What a miracle. I don't know much about DNA. Okay, but he said, he writes that, that six feet of DNA, six feet of DNA are folded up into the nucleus of every single cell in your body. 
Okay, remember how big a cell is? A micron? He said a micron is one-fifteenth of the edge of a piece of paper. Six feet of DNA. And it's not just crammed in there. He said it's like, it's like putting 30 feet of fishing line into a cherry pit. Same, same thing. It's not just crammed in there, he said. It's folded nicely. It's absolutely folded. Because every fold matters. Fold one way and that cell becomes a liver cell. Fold another way and that cell becomes a skin cell. And on it goes. That's you. And he said if you take all the DNA out of your body... Those six feet strands in every cell, it would circle the sun 260 times. That's all you. What a miracle. One last thing he pointed out. He said, you are one amazingly efficient thing. That the average human, ride, ride your bike for an hour at 10 miles an hour. He said, you will burn three ounces of, of carbohydrate. He said, if a car was as efficient as you, it would get 900 miles per gallon. You are a walking miracle. You are a walking declaration that there's no way that this came about by luck or by chance. There is a God. If you don't want to listen to a genetic engineer, how about an electrical engineer, a professor of electrical engineering? I was walking last night, going for my walk, listening to a podcast and they were interviewing this electrical engineer, trying to ask him to explain lightning balls. I'd never heard of a lightning ball before, but maybe you have. If you have, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but look it up sometime. They're trying to figure out what a lightning ball is and how it works and, and what happens. And he's been studying lightning balls for years, trying to replicate them in the laboratory. And this elect professor of electrical engineering finally said, I, I don't know. I've been studying all my life, and I just, I have no idea what it is. In fact, he came to the point in the interview where I jotted it down. Um, he said this. He said, the world is full of things that aren't understood. In fact, almost nothing is understood. Isn't that amazing? These are scientists digging into the details of life. We think we know so much. We think we have such a handle on everything. And, and he's the one who's doing this says, we don't understand anything. We don't have a clue. This whole universe is an advertisement for our creator. And Psalm 19 tells us how far this message goes. Remember it says, There is no speech or language where their voice, this voice of creation, is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. This message goes beyond language barriers. It goes beyond distance. goes beyond any excuse that we might give for denying the existence of God. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1 verse 20. It says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How do we see His divine nature and His eternal power? They've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. Creation leaves every single person without excuse. The evidence is all around us. God exists. But, but, 
there is a significant limitation in what the creation around us can tell us. Because creation cannot tell us the story of Jesus. Creation does not tell us the story of the sacrifice that Jesus made. It doesn't tell us the way of salvation. It doesn't tell us about forgiveness and grace. The truth about God in Jesus Christ comes through the second place that we look to find God. We turn to his word given to us in the Bible. The Bible, God's book, his autobiography. The story of God's life and his plan for creation written by God himself. How in the world did God do that? How in the world did God write a book? Did this book come down magically out of the sky like to say the book of Mormon did? No. God used people. He used people like Moses and David and, and Ezekiel and Paul and Peter and Matthew and Luke, all these people to write his story. And he used their individual styles and their individual contexts to write his story. Right? So Luke was a doctor, so he wrote like a doctor. And Paul was a logical thinker and a debater, so, so he wrote God's story out as facts and arguments and proofs. And David was a poet, so he wrote poems and songs. Moses was a historian, so he wrote the history. Ezekiel was a, an eccentric prophet, so he wrote stories that are hard to understand, that seem really wild and weird. And they all write in this different style, and they all write the same story. God writing his story through them. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through all times and all places to link the pieces of the story together into one book. Between, between these covers is the inspired word of God. Right? There, there's other books out there. Some denominations would add in the 15 apocryphal books. Right? Like Bell and the Dragon and Baruch and First and Second Maccabees and Susanna and the Wisdom of Solomon. There's still other ancient manuscripts. There's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of the Hebrews and the Secret Book of James. And, and some of those writings might be helpful. Some of them are not helpful at all. But none of them are the inspired Word of God if they're not in this book. What we have on these pages is God's revelation of himself. And through this book, God's story interacts directly with your story and my story. Right? The Apostle Paul writes this. He writes, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, he says, if you want to know what life is really all about, if you want to learn the purpose and meaning for living, if you want to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the years that you have on this earth, then you need to open up this book. You need to learn about what God is ready to teach you about life and living. And if you want to know what's right and what's wrong, and if you want to know the standards that you need to live by, and if you want to know what actions in life and choices will bring you blessing and fulfillment and contentment, and which ones will bring you sorrow and pain and suffering, 
then you need to open up this book. You need to read about the guidelines and standards that God gives. And if you want to be able to grow in goodness and grow in righteousness, if you want to become more of who God created you to be, then you need to open up this book and discover God's plan for this world and God's plan for your life. And without a doubt, that step of opening this book is a step of faith. Okay, how do we know? How do we know that what's between the covers of this book really are the word of God? It can't be just because the church tells you so. It can't be, your answer can't be simply, well, mom and dad told me so. It's because the Holy Spirit of God convicts us. We come at this book from a foundation of faith. And we set this book on that foundation of faith, then that foundation proves itself again and again. And this book proves itself to be the word of God as it gives us hope in the midst of our hopeless times. And it, it gives us comfort in the midst of our hurting. And it convicts us when we're sinning. And it challenges us when we're growing. And it strengthens us when we're weak. Again and again, God shows himself to us through this book. Now be aware that there's power. There is power in this book. There's the power in this book to transform the damned sinners to save saints. There's power in this book to bring forgiveness in the face of sin and guilt. There's power to bring hope in the face of hopelessness and despair in this world and in this life. There's power to open up the door of eternity which otherwise remains locked. There is power to see the invisible God in this book. The words on these pages are so much more than just words on paper. They are the active, living word of God. Right? They're, they're alive. And they have power to shape our daily stories. Right? Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. He said, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. And listen to this, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. It's at work in you. It's doing stuff to you. It's changing you. And that's not always a pleasant thing, is it? But the author of the book of Hebrews says this. He says the word of God is living and active. It's sharp, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. It's doing stuff. So be aware, watch out. If you're going to open this book, know there's power here. There's power to change you power to affect your life. Open this book expecting to become part of this story. Expecting God to become a part of your story. Open this book and expect to read about your salvation story here. Because this entire book points to Jesus and God's great plan for you. It's what it's all about. 
right? The Old Testament. The Old Testament starts with all creation and keeps narrowing down like a funnel, right? It starts with everybody in all creation, then goes down to one nation, then goes down to one person, Jesus Christ. And the Gospels tell you about that one person, Jesus Christ, about the cross, about the empty tomb, about the resurrection. And suddenly this funnel goes the other way and the truth of Jesus goes to a nation and it goes beyond a nation. It goes to, to all people and it will go all the way to the end where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including you, including me. This is your story, this book is God revealing himself and what he has done for you and in you and through you. This is his story. This is your story. God's here in this book. And yet, honestly, we often don't read it, do we? We often don't read it. Let me give you a few numbers. Amongst American Christians, okay, this is not all Americans, this is amongst people who call themselves Christians. Two-thirds of Christians in America read the Bible less than once a week. Two-thirds. A full quarter of us never open the Bible except at church. So when I say, take out your Bibles and turn with me, that's the only time that you will ever take out your Bible and turn anywhere. For a quarter of us who call ourselves Christians. And it's not because we don't have access. Studies show that the average Christian has four Bibles. Every one of us have four Bibles. We got the book, we just don't read it. And if we don't read it, then we will not encounter God's power in our lives. And if we aren't encountering God's power in our lives, and we aren't going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. Too many of us are leaving the awesome power of God bottled up between the, the plush, leather-bound, name-engraved, gold-leafed, dust-laden covers of our Bible. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And he's not as elusive as the Loch Ness Monster. God is proving his presence constantly non-stop through the order and the intricacy and the beauty and the grandeur of this world all around us. And that leaves believers like you and me with an incredible opportunity and an incredible task. You see, nobody, remember, nobody is left without, the, without excuse. Nobody is left with the excuse of, how was I to know that there was a God? No one can claim ignorance but they still need to hear about Jesus. They still, creation may show them that there's a God. This book tells them about Jesus. They still need to hear about the cross. They still need to hear about the empty tomb. They still need to hear about the resurrection and the eternity waiting for them. They still need to hear about grace and forgiveness and joy that can be theirs. 
And that's your job. That's my job. And if we decide to ignore the job we've been given to bring this good news, this gospel to the world, then we're choosing to leave people standing without excuse before God. Standing without excuse before God. That's not a pretty place to be. So open your eyes. Open this book. Know God and make him known. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for not being secret, for not being distant, for not being otherworldly. Thank you for being a God who's right here with us, who's showing evidence of yourself to us every moment of every day with every breath we breathe and everything that we see and hear and touch and taste. Forgive us for all the time, and it's probably most of the time, that we enjoy this life, that we enjoy this creation, that we enjoy the miracle of this world and totally ignore you, the miracle maker, the life giver. Father, may we be people who see and hear and touch and taste you everywhere, all the time. Open up our eyes to see you. And then open up our mouths, Father, that we may speak of you. That we may bring people back to your word. Your word that offers forgiveness and grace. Your word that tells the story of your love through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for revealing who you are. Make us people of your word. I pray that it'll be more than just a discipline for us, but it might be a joy for us to spend time between the covers of your book, to read your story, and to see ourselves written in that story as well. I thank you for this foundation of our faith. May it be a truth that we find worth living for and dying for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship team, would you come forward? Would the rest of you please stand with me where you are? Go ahead and stand where you are.